Welcome to the Low Countries Radio, a collaboration between Republic of Amsterdam Radio and the Low Countries website. Celebrating Flemish and Dutch history and culture and its impact on the world today. Welcome to Low Countries Radio. I'm Joe Wegasani. We share our world with innumerable other animals and our relationships with them are quirky indeed. Over countless generations, we humans have farmed animals and hunted them. We've feared them, loved them, needed them, and hated them. We have long forced our own personal whims on other animals, using them for labor or sport, even choosing whom they can mate with, often solely for the purpose of just trying to make their offspring cuter. We cherish animals, and we eat them. We give them symbolic significance throughout history, assigning them divine meaning or power. Over thousands of years, our relationships with animals have been an integral part of how we and our world have developed. In the Low Countries, this is a journey that hails from ancient times of hunter-fisher communities into the early days of animal husbandry through centuries of urbanization, warfare, mass flood events, and land reclamation, all of which drastically affected animal life in the region. Now, in an age when animal rights have come ever more under the microscope of public scrutiny, the quality of the relationship between humans and other animals is being widely questioned and challenged, socially and politically. Clearly, we cannot cover every animal that has ever roamed the lowlands. However, in this episode of the Low Countries Radio, we are going to have a glance at just a few of the relationships between human and beast in this part of the world. We will see how these relationships have helped shape the local human societies and cultures, and how, over millennia, when it comes to our relationships within the animal kingdom, We have wiped some out, invited others into our homes, but also unintentionally had some as very unwelcome guests. So to help me do all of this, we are going to bring Julian Smith to the microphone as a brand new father. Julian is going to have to know a lot about animals. Hello, Julian. Can you tell me what sound an oryx made? Hello, Joe. One of the most culturally significant ways that we relate to animals is as food. Although that relationship has changed drastically over time, it is very much at the core of how and why our societies have developed into what they are today. Humans who lived 10,000 plus years ago in the area that we now refer to as the Low Countries were nomadic hunter-gatherers. Their day-to-day relationship with animals would have been intimate and frequent. Archaeological evidence taken from soil samples can tell us a little bit about what sort of animals abounded in which areas. For instance, reindeer were a primary prey for many hunter-gathering people in Europe. Reindeer remains taken from the soil in the Netherlands and the North Sea have been dated as being no younger than 30,000 years old leading to the hypothesis that reindeer in this area were either hunted or pushed out for environmental reasons earlier than in other regions. In these riverine boglands, the zooarchaeological evidence from the soil shows plenty of evidence of red deer, beaver and aurochs, which were a wild European ox which is now extinct. To answer your question from earlier, Joe, the sound an oryx made probably went something like moo. There would have been abundant catfish, perch, and pike, not to mention birds like ducks, geese, and swans. Beavers were extremely common, as well as fundamental pieces in the Delta ecosystem. In her report, titled Animals and People in the Netherlands Past, zooarchaeologist Canon Charkilar points out that at sites where evidence of beaver butchery exists, the slaughtered beavers were almost always fully grown. This suggests an appreciation for the need to allow the beaver population to sustain itself, that the people hunting them did not overexploit their resources. Although it is impossible to know for certain exactly how the many different animals which lived in the low countries were regarded by the people whose existence depended on them, they were absolutely central to their day-to-day existence. 
Perhaps this is best evidenced by the ancient cave art from Western Europe, which almost always depicts animals. Around 12,000 years ago, humans much further east began to transition from this Mesolithic life to a more Neolithic style of living. Humans began to go from being hunter-gatherers to farmers. This transition was marked by the increase of sedentary life processes like plant cultivation, alcohol brewing, bread making, ceramics, and importantly for us today, animal husbandry. These technological and social developments moved from east to west over thousands of years as farming peoples migrated their herds and ideas ever onwards to greener pastures, so to speak. The exact sequence of how things happened is extremely foggy and much debated as researchers continue to work tirelessly collecting, sifting through and analysing whatever skerrick of evidence they can bring to light from a time so long ago. For the Netherlands, it seems to have been around 7,000 years ago that domesticated animals first entered the scene. One issue with precisely determining this is that the region has big areas of sandy soil in which organic matter does not last very long. As such, in those places, no evidence really remains. There is a general consensus among experts that ceramics arrived before animal husbandry, which indicates that these different processes and ideas did not all arrive at once, but rather most likely dripped in over time. However long the period of agricultural revolution took, as soon as domesticated animals arrived in the low countries, they became central to how humans developed the land on which they ate, defecated and bred. These original newcomers were goats, cattle, sheep and pigs, as well as dogs and horses. The next few thousand years saw the integration of animal and plant husbandry into lifestyles that still included hunting and gathering. But the land was good for grazing, and this put ever more pressure on wild animals. Traces of mammal remains from roughly five and a half to six and a half thousand years ago show a ratio of about one-third domestic to two-third wild mammals present. Around 4,000 years ago, the technical innovation of metallurgy became intertwined within the ever more agriculturally driven societies. More and more small farms emerged during the so-called Bronze Age, which continued into the Iron Age. During these millennia, although there were still plenty of sheep, goats and pigs, there was a general trend in the low countries towards cows. Even though hunting wild game remained an important part of the culture and experiences of these Bronze Age people, it was becoming a less vital part of their diet. In the Mesolithic past, fowling, hunting birds, had contributed greatly to people's dietary intakes, but this seemingly decreased during the Bronze and Iron Ages. There is evidence that smoked meat, usually beef, became a widespread staple. The transition of this relationship to different animals continued and expanded as the Roman Empire reached into the Low Countries from the 1st century BCE. Some of the first impressions that remain from the Roman perspective include those of Julius Caesar himself, who described main sources of food when describing the Netherlandish coastal regions. Of course, telling it from his own extremely self-serving Roman perspective, he couldn't help but throw in a few insults as well, saying that the area was, quote, inhabited by savage and barbarous nations, of whom there are some who are supposed to live on fish and the eggs of sea fowl, end quote. Roman power, influence, and demands grew in the first century of the Common Era. The economic and military obligations that this placed on local agricultural operations furthered the increased use of cattle above other domestic animals. Alive, they were useful as draft animals, laboriously pulling that which humans could not. Dead, they were used for oil, leather, manure, horn, and bone. The Romans also imported the idea of an in-city cattle slaughterhouse to their low-country stronghold, Nijmegen, bringing professional butchery to the area. The industrial processing of beef, butchering, smoking, preserving, would have had a big impact on the diets of the local populace as well. During the Middle Ages and into the early modern era, the relationship someone had with animals as food would have depended largely on which class or estate they belonged to. 
An aristocrat might hunt wild animals as prey, yet have nothing to do with its butchering and preservation, that task falling to the servants who might not even eat the animal. A commoner of moderate means might own some chickens, or more likely pigs, which were the cheapest and easiest domestic animal for a small household to manage. But they were unlikely to be able to afford anything from a professional butcher. From at least the late 13th century in the Low Countries, butchery was a regulated trade governed by guild, and it generated a lot of money. Between the 14th and 15th centuries, the wealthy meat cutters guilds reached their apex of power in the region. The expression of this can be found in the large and ornate Fleishallen, or meat halls, that were constructed in the bigger towns and cities. Some of these remain today, such as the Grote Fleismarkt in Ghent, which dates from the 15th century. Often they were positioned in the same central location as the market square and the town hall, allowing the butchers' guilds to become firmly entrenched within the governing apparatus of towns, their members among the urban elite. In Amsterdam today, a beautifully restored gable stone from 1644 is preserved in the wall of a building on the Nesplein, right in the historic heart of the city, nearby where Amsterdam's Grote Vleeshal once stood. The stone shows three meat inspectors at work, dutifully checking out the bodies of a cow and a sheep which have been butchered, flayed and hung up. It's an intricately detailed and rather gruesome depiction of the up-close and personal relationship which many people would have had with animals as food at the time. Compared to today, there were far more animals in towns and cities through the late Middle Ages. One pretty consistent aspect of towns in the Low Countries for centuries was that there were pigs running around everywhere. They acted like pigs and were loud, they stank, and they fouled the water in the streets and caused general obstacles and nuisance. Over the 14th and 15th centuries, numerous ordinances, regulations, laws and decisions around pig control were created to prevent persistent pig problems. In Flanders, towns like Hasebroek and Ghent were banning unruly swine from the early 14th century. There is a mention from 1385 in Utrecht of the policy to not allow pigs to wander the streets, and in Dordrecht in 1446, a pigs from the street policy was implemented, disallowing unsupervised pigs in public spaces. And by the middle of the 16th century, Amsterdam was banning the keeping of pigs within city walls completely. These are but a few examples, and lots of towns would eventually end up banning pigs altogether. So it wasn't particularly easy to own a pig in a medieval urban environment. Unless you were a monk of the Order of Hospitallers of St. Anthony the Great, that is. Anthony the Great, a.k.a. Tantony, lived in the 3rd century in Egypt, and after his death became the patron saint of animals in general, but is particularly associated with pigs. In depictions of him, one can usually find a porcine presence somewhere, while other iconography includes a bell, which signifies his also being a patron saint of healers. In the 13th century in France, his saintliness inspired the foundation of the Order of Hospitallers of St. Anthony, dedicated to treating the sick. In particular, these were places where those suffering from St. Anthony's fire could go. This was the common name for the affliction of ergot poisoning, a fungal infection of grains that people sometimes ingested and fell ill to. Because of their service to the community in healing the sick, the monks' pigs were usually exempt from the increasing restrictions that towns enacted to limit the presence of pigs within the town walls. The pigs would have to wear a certain bell though, a Tantony bell, which gave them a free pass to wander about the town and just be happy little pigs on the street wherever they felt like it. These days, there are far fewer pigs wandering around towns and cities in the low countries, and urban legislation rarely, if ever, needs to concern itself with our porky pals. Nor is the connection between pigs and St. Anthony as openly exalted as it once was. However, all over Flanders and in parts of Brabant, many towns still celebrate St. Anthony's patronage over pigs and other animals on his name day, the 17th of January. 
On that particular winter's Sunday, people in towns across those regions come together at the local church and, after Mass, haul out a couple of slain pigs and put them up for auction before the jovial community. In some places, such as in Hoichem, Rolochem, Hautem, Aflichem, Wesemal and Rotzelar, the celebration gets taken to a whole new level. To use in Hoichem as an example, the day before the St. Anthony celebration, local farmers hand over living chickens, geese and rabbits for the festivities, as well as two slaughtered pigs in full and two pig heads. The full pigs are then cut open and stuffed with decorative garnishes and made to look pretty before they are stored in a fridge for the following day's festivities. On the Sunday morning, the people of Inhoichem and their animals make their way into the town centre where a general consecration takes place. People usually bring their dogs and some horses, which are blessed, before the human participants head towards the church for the mass. The town's 12-year-old children are central to the procession. These children, who are of the age to receive communion, are dressed in grey hooded cloaks and are given the honour of carrying those lavishly decorated pigs and those decapitated pig heads into the church. One new resident, who was unfamiliar with the tradition, described first seeing it in a Vice News article like this. Quote, There were pigs on stretchers. They were stuffed with wafer-thin slices of lemon and orange and decorated with pink and blue bows. Normally the most exciting thing I come across on my walks is a lowing cow, so I didn't understand it. End quote. So these 12-year-olds carry the pigs and those heads into the church where they are set before the altar. According to local organiser Gert Himpens, quote, There are some children who frown when they get their hands on such a pig's head, but as soon as they are on their way, that disappears. They are taken over by adrenaline, getting the boar in its entirety all the way to the church. Such a beast weighs 80 to 100 kilograms. That is not nothing. It has happened that a boar falls and we have to pick it up while it is slippery, end quote. After the church service, they then do a lottery in which everyone assembles outside and those participating hold their hand in the air with one euro clutched in their fist. The auctioneer will then call out names randomly. Meanwhile, another person is inside the church, ignorant of what is happening outside, ringing a bell. Each time the bell rings, the person whose name was last called out will have their euro go into a pot and their name added to a hat. Names are then pulled out for prizes, with the first name pulled out getting the grand prize of one fully grown dead pig. Second place would get a chicken, third a goose, fourth some other meat cuts, and the fifth a lovely jar of pâté. This local tradition has been recognised as part of the intangible cultural heritage of Flanders, highlighting its importance to these communities' sense of identity. Like everything else, though, the St. Anthony's feast day had to be suspended for two years during the recent COVID pandemic, and upon its return, this tradition has undergone some changes in accordance with the more modern understandings of animal welfare and rights. Living animals are no longer used in the procession or the auction. Rather, as of 2022, instead of bringing rabbits and chickens along for the procession, the town's kids now take their stuffed animals. How cute. Evidently, our relationship with animals is changing as time progresses and our moral understandings of the ethical treatment of animals increases. Perhaps in the near future, those 12-year-old children won't be carrying slaughtered pigs, but will rather be carrying 3D-printed, lab-grown, soy-based swine to the auction. Let's look at birds. As mentioned earlier, the practice of fowling has been widespread in this region for a long time, and that continued into the Roman era, but so too did the domestication of birds in general. It was either slightly before or during the early stages of Roman incursion that another now much-loved animal entered the scene. The kip. The chicken. Originating mainly from the Asian red jungle fowl, the journey of chicken DNA has certainly been a long and expansive one. The chicken clearly functions as a great food source for humans, continually providing eggs and meat. 
However, for a long period, the chicken carried a lot of weight as an animal of mystical significance and was regularly used in spiritual or religious rites. This can be found in cultures all around the world, but may have been introduced to this region by the Romans, who had themselves long enjoyed the practices of augury and electriomancy. The former, augury, is divining fortunes and omens from the way a bird flies, which is done by an augur. That is a detail that every Harry Potter book failed to mention. The latter, electriomancy, is divining fortunes and omens from the way a bird feeds. So you could scatter food in front of a chicken and watch it carefully to find out what that week's lottery numbers were going to be. The observations made were known as taking the auspices, with the word auspice coming from the Latin term to mean literally looking at birds. At some point, black chickens came to bear their own special significance. Some folk beliefs, as related by researcher Robin Pistorius from Wageningen University, include that to boil a black chicken, feathers and all, would banish the devil, and that to lay your shirt in the poo of a black chicken and then put it on would help to heal wounds. Gross. The essence of these beliefs outlived the medieval period. Anthropologist William de Blecourt, in his essay, Boiling Chickens and Burning Cats, Witchcraft in the Western Netherlands, 1850-1925, relates the story of a child living in a village between the Hague and Gouda, being reported as bewitched. An unwitcher, whom the parents consulted, advised them to boil a black chicken to draw the witch back to the place so that she could undo the spell. Blaycourt uses newspaper reports as well as a 1934 witchcraft survey to assert that, quote, in the 19th century, boiling a black chicken alive was, in fact, rather popular, especially in mid and western areas of the Netherlands, end quote. From the late medieval to early modern period, the chicken came to mean so much more to different peoples across the Low Countries than just some poor bird to be divinely killed to ward off the devil or draw out a witch. On the contrary, by the 17th century, the chicken and the rooster were widely held to be symbols of love and fertility. And not just like your namby-pamby writing poems and playing a lute sort of love. No. The love of the chook was also a promiscuous, lascivious one, and the rooster, well, they're not called cocks for nothing. Renowned art historian Eddie de Jong, in his piece, Bird's Eye View of Erotica, the Ambiguity of a Series of 17th Century Genre Performances, wrote, quote, In the literature and symbolism of the Middle Ages, birds are frequently associated with love, either love in the lofty spiritual sense or love in the sexual sense. End quote. He points out numerous references in varied works from Netherlandish artists using chickens and other birds to get their lewd entendres across, but also that this came to play linguistically as well. Kip, the Dutch word for chicken, came to mean a girl of purportedly loose morals. Keeping chickens in the attic could mean operating a brothel, and more generally, vogelen, or to bird, became a verbal euphemism for having sex. It started out informally in the early 16th century, but eventually came to be a part of the official parlance, not just a casual colloquialism for coitus or slang for a shag. In 1602, the report from one bailiff to his lord about a man seducing a housewife said that they, quote, had birded at different locations, end quote. Rembrandt's most famous painting, the Militia Company of District 2 under the command of Captain Franz Banningcock and Lieutenant Willem van Reitenburg, aka the Night Watch, is overloaded with curious ambiguities, arguably the greatest of which, though, is the little girl with a dead chicken hanging from her belt. There are many different theories about what they might symbolize. It has long been speculated that the face of the girl greatly resembles the face of Rembrandt's wife, Saskia, who had modelled for him many times, but who had also died in the same year that he was completing the painting. 
There are different ideas about what the chicken represents. Perhaps it is the bird's claw that was the militia company's emblem. Perhaps, however, it was a symbol of Rembrandt's perished love. We'll be back after this break. Perhaps the most dangerous animal ever encountered in the Low Countries was first publicly recognised in the 1730s. From the moment that this dreaded scourge first made itself known to the people of the Dutch Republic, it immediately presented an existential threat to a country which was already on the back foot from wars, floods, economic downturns and plagues that it had suffered through over the preceding half century. The threat of this animal compounded upon all those problems itself instantly causing destruction and panic, and became a focal point in matters of engineering, administration, and social morals. One contemporary writer called them, quote, unrecognized sea beasts, end quote, and their arrival led to a variety of responses in different sectors of Dutch society. Adam Sundberg, whose work on this topic provides a lot of the information we will unpack in this section, described the social angst generated by this creature as, quote, a level of anxiety seldom seen in the 18th century. This anxiety was most evident in the degree of public interest and involvement, end quote. Other historians have even gone so far as to point at some of the responses to this threat as turning points in the Netherlands' progress into modernity. Yes, this fearsome creature's influence has been long and wide-reaching indeed. So what then was this ferocious beastie? Well, dear listeners... What happened is that the Netherlands got a nasty case of the worms. In the autumn of 1730, a dike inspector in Zeeland called Eduardus Reinfarn was doing exactly as his job demanded and inspecting some dikes. There had been a large storm, so his job had taken him to the island of Walcheren. As he got to the West Capella dike, he saw something strange. Dikes back then were commonly built as bodies of soil, sand and clay. To stop the water from breaking through the earthen dike with its relentless pounding, they were protected on the seaside by a thick layer of densely ingrained seaweed and seagrass. Wooden piles were arranged in rows to hold this layer in place. What Edwaldus Reinfarn saw was that the tops of many of the wooden piles had been snapped clean off. Having a closer look, To his great consternation, he saw that the wood was riven with strange, elongated holes. The interior substance was more a powder than the hardened wood it had once been. When he reported to the Valcheren governing body, he told them that, quote, the piles are full of worms, end quote. The first thing we should mention about this creature, the pile worm, known in English as the ship worm, is that it is not actually a worm. Rather, it is a mollusk whose evolutionary processes have seen it cast off the need for a shell, instead making its home in big chunks of wood and seawater, in which individuals can spawn, grow, eat, and as per their hermaphroditic way, reproduce. They can grow up to 25 centimetres long in colder climes and over 60 centimetres in warmer waters. There is still debate as to where these mollusks originated from, with the long-standing theory having been that they migrated to Europe from tropical waters, although they were recorded in Europe as far back as late antiquity. For the waterboard administrators in Walcheren, if they were at all familiar with these creatures, it would have been because of maritime experience or knowledge. They had no idea what to do about this potential disaster, but concentrated on replacing the affected timber. New piles were quickly installed, but only two weeks later, another storm broke through almost half of these as well. At that point, different parts of Valcheren began to report similar troubling news. The shipworm infestation was now threatening the entire island. By December 1730, just a few months after the initial discovery, the Valcheren council clerk described the situation as threatening, quote, the utmost consequence, if not total ruin, of the island, end quote. Even more troubling, within a year, dike inspectors in Holland and Friesland had reported similar infestations around Diemer Dyke, the West Frisian dikes along the Zuiderzee, 
the containment dikes by Den Helder, and across the strait in Tessel and all along the Frisian coast. At least one waterboard in Friesland was struck by ignorance on what plagued their timbers, describing it as a, quote, certainly unknown sort of worm, end quote. The aftermath of the worm's discovery in the Low Countries is a complex arrangement of reactions, ranging from pragmatic engineering solutions to hysterical mistruths. The problem emerged only 13 years after the Christmas Day flood of 1717, in which around 2,500 people had lost their lives in North Holland and Friesland. The memory of what devastation could be wrought in the event of broken dikes was fresh in the minds of everybody. There were a bunch of different reactions to this new plague, both in the Netherlands and abroad. Broadly speaking, the initial and official response was a scientific, technocratic and institutional reaction led by regional water boards that sought to solve the actual issue of dike repairs from the outset. This immediate response sought facts and pragmatic solutions. Second to this, however, a wave of public reaction swelled that ranged from civic zeal to religious zealotry to angst-driven, misinformation fueled hysteria. Some of these provide interesting insights into contemporary perspectives at the time. In the first reaction, dike inspectors and administrators discovered that wood that sat in fresh water was unaffected, which meant most of the towns and cities, themselves also built on wooden piles, should be safe. There then unfolded a process of trying to come up with ideas for how to repair or rebuild the dikes in ways that would withstand the beast. There is the suggestion that the engineers who actually knew what they were talking about when it came to dike construction were largely bereft of ideas. According to Amsterdam contemporary chronicler David Franco Mendes, when it came to the matter of how to solve the problem, they, quote, unanimously expressed their agreement that they did not know, and at the same time, that they knew with certainty that it was a punishment from heaven, and that human power was insufficient to fight against these tiny insects. End quote. We'll get back to the religious side of it in a little bit. By 1732, Dutch engineers were still at a loss of how to deal with the so-called worm plague, and authorities decided to turn to the public. The West Frisian Drechterland Water Board put an appeal into an Amsterdam newspaper calling for people to submit ideas and solutions to the dike reeves of Horn and Enkhuizen. The issue entered the public domain at full force and became swept up in a plethora of ideas, suggestions, anxieties and demands. Around the same time in 1732, terrible news came from even further south. In Flanders, at the towns of Blankenberger, Ostender, and Newport, lock gates and other wooden structures had also become infected. Now this was a problem for the Austrian Netherlands, as well as the Dutch Republic. A litany of newspaper articles emerged, both at home and abroad. One, in a paper called the Europicius Mercurius, came out in 1732. The report detailed the issue and also made an appeal for solutions, stating that submissions for ideas must, quote, be repaired in a way that prevents further damage from the worms, two, protect against the violence of the sea so that people can live peacefully, and three, do so using the least costly methods, end quote. Number three, by the way, do so using the least costly methods, you can just chuck in at the end of any list of instructions a Dutch person ever gives you. In response to this, there was a flurry of innovative ideas about how to best fight the worms. Different regions considered and tried different approaches. In Zeeland, the idea of coating the wooden piles with sheet metal was pondered over. Many suggestions came in from the public, which were variants of the old and well-known processes of treating ships for shipworm. To treat a ship for shipworm, by the way, the worst planks would have to be replaced. Various mixtures of tar, pitch, sulfur, and oil would be poured into the holes to kill the mollusks and their larvae. Afterwards, a thick layer of tar or pitch would be applied onto the entire hull, along with layers of rawhide. 
methods such as these were tried in different locations by different authorities. Natural scientists also mobilized to study the palworm, including one of the fathers of natural philosophy, Gottfried Selius, who quickly identified that the shipworm was not a worm, but a mollusk. A great deal of discussion erupted amongst experts in Europe about the origin of this mollusk. Selius and others questioned the assumption that it had come from Asia or the Americas. It was suggested that they were, in fact, native to the northern climes, but had swollen in numbers because of recent warmer weather and higher salinity levels. Contemporary writer Jean Rousseau de Missy, who lived in the Netherlands and compiled his own piece on the whole event, asserted that, quote, These worms are no new things on our coast. Many persons remember to have seen worms of the same kind about 50 years ago. End quote. The media reporting, you will be surprised to hear, continued to fuel the false information that had set the rumor windmills of the Netherlands spinning furiously. An Amsterdam newspaper in January 1733 told of how in Swiss and German newspapers it was being reported that Amsterdam itself had succumbed to the rapacious beast who had ripped through the timbers that held up the great canal-side houses, sending scores of merchants fleeing for their lives. Cartoons appeared, showing the ferocious, sharp-fanged worms, as big as ships, ripping through the country's great wooden foundations and leaving it on the precipice of demise. Like every event at the time, the shipworm infestation was easily notched up as divine retribution for the country's sins. The outbreak coincided with the recent uncovering of a so-called sodomy network being a community of gay men in Utrecht. This sparked an eruption of anti-homosexual discrimination between 1730 and 33 that spread from Utrecht, where 18 men were convicted and executed by strangulation, to Holland and Groningen as well, where in the town of Farn, 22 men were tortured and executed for sodomy. During the course of this uproar, its zealot-driven hysteria collided with the public fear of the shipworm blight, as publicised in the papers. Pamphlets, posters and other pieces emerged with titles such as God's Menacing Judgment on the Netherlands that insisted that the infestation of shipworm was God's wrath as punishment for sinful behaviour such as sodomy. Here's a translation of a Dutch poem that emerged in 1732 in Germany. Quote, Hollanders, do you want to see the evil worms driven away and thy lands be kept from destruction? Then drive away the gay, wicked and sodomistic rot, the pernicious generation justly hated by God. Drive out the wanderers who live sacrilegiously and strive yet still for the Roman throne. Put all sort of sects to one side, because those insects do the worst harm to the land, end quote. You'll notice the particularly religious bent to it, equating homosexuals with Catholics striving for the Roman throne. It is deliberately ambiguous whether the final line, because those insects do the worst harm to the land, is about the persecuted gay men or the vermiform, worm-like foreign creatures nibbling away on their dikes. For the Puritans pitted against them, these men's strange behaviour was as threatening as that of the insidious worms in the piles. We're not going to get tied into the persecution against gay men in the 18th century, because this is an episode about animals and we have already wandered pretty far off course. But suffice it to say that the shipworm infestation of Dutch dikes both generated existential fear and was used to amplify a concurrent wave of xenophobia that had erupted at the same time. Shipworm would continue to present problems for dike engineers up until modern times, although there were a couple of steps that were taken following the outbreak which stand as significant markers for the country's development towards technological and administrative modernity. These are the way that the dikes are built and how we feel about old stuff. In 1733, the Staten van Holland adopted a proposal of two men called Peter Straat and Peter van der Dürre which was, in their words, quote, a new manner of dike building that has never been practiced before, namely to bring boulders and stony cliff rocks to the dike and to lay them on the seaward slope of the dike, end quote. 
Boom. The implementation of this design idea demanded the infrastructure needed to bring sufficient stone into Holland, which adopted it first, and then later Friesland and Zeeland. This became a monumentally expensive task, but one which changed the organisational way in which dikes would be built from then on, wherein sloped boulders would become the norm rather than clay wrapped in seaweed. Stone became an important commodity, and this had another unforeseen consequence. In Drenthe, which had plentiful boulders, people started collecting stone from wherever they could, including from Hunebedden, which are ancient burial mounds found in the Low Countries. The possible destruction of Hunebedden became such a problem that in July 1734, less than four years after the emergence of the shipworm problem, the provincial government in Drenthe passed a law called the Order Against the Removal of Stones which was the first legislation in Dutch history that protected monuments and archaeological sites. So the next time you visit a protected, preserved heritage site in the Netherlands, you should think of the shipworm, that humble creature who just wants to live without a shell and a piece of wood, that mighty mollusk that nearly brought disaster upon these lands. Engineers may have been able to defeat it with stone, but in the ways that the past is preserved in the Netherlands, the shipworm spirit shall live on forever. At the start of this episode, we spoke about how we humans have had many and changing relationships with animals. In modern times, we seem to put much more emphasis on the comfort and preservation of animals than we did in centuries past. Our widened understanding of ecological systems and the important roles that different animals play in the overall sustenance of the environment has led to a growth in protected environments and habitats. As such, various species of animals which had either been pushed to the brink or even wiped out completely in the area are now staging a comeback in the low countries in the 21st century. Perhaps the best examples of these are the badger the beaver, and the wolf. Although the return of these animals is a triumph for environmental protection policies, the complicated nature of their relationship to humans means that we are still faced with lots of difficulties if we are to harmoniously coexist with them. To look at beavers first, the last wild beaver in the Netherlands was killed in 1826 when it was beaten to death by an oar-wielding fisherman in the Isel River, who had mistaken it for a fish-thieving otter. It was not until over 150 years later in 1988 that a beaver reintroduction program was started. Breeding pairs were brought from Germany and set free in the Beesbos between 1988 and 91, and then a few years later, more were introduced into Gelderland. By the 2000s, beavers have been spotted in every province in the country, including last year in the outskirts of the capital city, Amsterdam. In 2019, it was estimated that the Netherlands is now home to around 3,500 beavers. However, each year there are numerous reports of dike damage done by these busy little beasts. They are more into their dams than their dikes, you see. According to one report, the problem is particularly bad in the province of Limburg, where over 2,000 instances of beaver damage were recorded between 2019 and 2021, causing around 400,000 euros damage and leading to the Limburg Water Board needing to spend over 80,000 euros to try to prevent beavers from burrowing through dikes or blocking water flow with their dams. Things are similar for the badger. In 1900, there were roughly 12,000 badgers present in the Netherlands, but by 1960, it is estimated that the number had plummeted by 90%, mainly due to overhunting. Up until 1960, badger meat and fat was sold in South Limburg as a medicine to help cure medical woes which arose from working in mines. In 1967, the Nature Conservation Act in the Netherlands officially protected badgers, and since 2001, the badger, its burrows, and their immediate living environments have been strictly protected by law. As such, it is estimated that today there are around five to 6,000 badgers happily badgering around in the Netherlands. Badger, badger, badger. 
But with Badger numbers climbing, so too has the number of interactions they have with people, and perhaps most importantly, with human infrastructure. Like with the beavers, so with the badgers. Badgers are very social animals, and they live in giant underground burrows that consist of multiple chambers, connected by tunnels up to 20 meters long and 3 to 4 meters deep, with more than 10 individuals in each burrow. They basically turn whatever piece of ground they choose to be their home into a Swiss cheese, which is a problem when they make themselves resident in dikes and underneath train lines, weakening them to such a degree that they could easily collapse. Since badgers are protected by law, fixing this issue is no easy task. In March 2023, some of the most important train lines across the Netherlands from Brabant to Friesland had to be temporarily closed, and as we record, work is still being undertaken to move the badgers out of their burrows and into new artificial burrows nearby. As such, in effect, 10 badgers in Brabant have forced over 50,000 passengers to get out of the train each day, transfer to a bus, and then get onto another less badger-affected train further down the line. These cases should remind you of the shipworm epidemic of the 18th century, with creatures burrowing away at the protective fortifications that the country has against things like the relentless tide. The difference here, of course, being that beavers and badgers were deliberately brought back into a region which their species had once called home, and unlike the munching mollusks, they are literally protected by the law. One returned animal that is not destroying dikes, as far as we know, is the wolf. When we speak of human relationships with animals, that which we hold with the wolf is deeply intertwined with our social development. It was the wolf, after all, that we domesticated into one of our most beloved pets. In ancient low country societies, we have to draw on what little is known about the perspectives in which Germanic peoples held the animal. The wolf has a presence in Anglo-Saxon, Norse and Carolingian mythology and poetry, often held up for its strength and endurance. In the Christian Europe of the Middle Ages, the wolf became widely held in contempt, often depicted via the church as a symbol of evil, and together with the boar and the bear, shunned for their pagan associations. In the High Middle Ages, this perception of the wolf intensified into an all-out fear of a man-eating beast. Stories and tales began to emerge from around the turn of the millennium, such as that by Egbert of Liège, about a young girl whose red cloak protects her from a voracious wolf. In the developed iteration of the story that remains with us today, Little Red Riding Hood, the wolf is eventually outwitted. In the Middle Ages, there were occasionally tropes about wolves being stupid and dim-witted. It would seem that, from the human perspective, the relationship with wolves was about us being smarter than they were quick and violent. The late Middle Ages in the region was a period of war and famine. At this stage, connections were already being made between warfare and an increase of wolf attacks. It was argued that dead bodies around the place gave them a taste for human flesh. Towns in the Low Countries would sometimes hang up the splayed bodies of wolves outside their gates, much in the manner that criminal bodies were exhibited as a way of warning would-be culprits. It is thought that there was a wolf paw nailed to the door of Hravenstein Castle in the early 18th century. While the wolf faced much hostility, it also represented something more honourable and worthy to members of the noble class, who hunted them vigorously and wore their pelts with pride. By the late 19th century, wolf populations had disappeared from the Low Countries. But just as we've seen with badgers and beavers, with greater environmental awareness and protections, the wolf has been enticed to return, with the first ones being recorded in 2015 in the Netherlands and in 2018 in Flanders. This has been both celebrated and lamented, showing that the human passion in regard to its relationship with wolves did not disappear when they did. On the one hand, people have been overjoyed at the idea of rewilding, that nature is returning to a place that has been so shaped by human urbanization. The return of the wolf could symbolize that we are doing something right by the world. On the other hand, some people abide more to those same long-standing fears that were so entrenched in the emotions, myths, and stories of the past. 
One particular group who are materially affected by the return of wolves are farmers, whose sheep are easy pickings for the hungry wolves and who are less than enthusiastic about their return. A compensation scheme has been implemented for farmers whose livestock falls victim to wolves. The return of wolves has ignited much debate as we still try to figure out how this relationship should go forward in the future. When it comes to what to do about wolves, perhaps it is actually a case of what to do about us. As Martin Drenton puts it in his essay The Return of the Wild in the Anthropocene, Wolf Resurgence in the Netherlands, quote, The uneasy truth of the resurging wolves is that we have forgotten what it means to be living in a world that remains wild. The possible return of wolves in landscapes where they were thought to have gone extinct forever challenges existing notions about ourselves. We have to relearn who we are in a world that is still, to a large degree, uncontrollable and wild. End quote. That's a pretty good point, if you ask me. And really, we should put the wolf threat in perspective with other animals, because it's arguable that our perception and projection of it are much larger than the reality would demand. According to Bai Twalof, an interprovincial Dutch government organization which helps implement environmental policies and laws, wolves were responsible for merely 0.2% of the total cost of compensation paid out to farmers whose property was damaged by wild animals in 2020. Wolves didn't even feature in the top 10 most damaging animals. Do you want to know what the most damaging animal is? Over 87% of compensation was paid out to cover damage caused by the many variant species of what are objectively the worst animals on the planet, geese. So there you have it, just a few of the ways in which animals have fitted in and been affected by human development in the low countries. As we trudge into the future, we will need to keep re-evaluating and updating not only how we maintain relationships with all the many different creatures we share this world with, but particularly as regards our behaviour in those relationships. After all, none of those creatures get much say in their relationship with the most impactful animal of all, us humans. Do you want to know more about Flemish and Dutch history and culture? Visit www.the-low-countries.com This podcast is made by Republic of Amsterdam Radio. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.